Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rude. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolikur-Rude, and today I am super excited to bring on the show a woman that I met through the 500 Rising organization and actually got to train with this summer. Emmy Heald graduated in 2006 with a double major in criminal justice and psychology, and then in 2010 with a master's in criminal justice specific to gangs and youthful offenders. She has worked all over the place, including in food service, sales, a few years as a promotional and advertising model, a year as a Miller Lite gal, and we're going to come back to that in a little while. She's also been an advocate at a sexual assault center and has spent the last seven years as a corrections officer, the last nine as a case manager. She trains new staff in self-defense, control tactics, crisis innovation, motivational interviewing, scenario-based trainings, conflict management, and negotiations, and a whole bunch of other badass areas that are needed when you're working in that environment. So welcome to the show, Emmy. Thank you, Cynthia. I'm so honored to be a part of your show. Well, you were on here last year as part of that 500 Rising Roundtable, but that was a big group. It was a very big group. (laughs) And I guess the good news is that this year, the group got even bigger. Oh my gosh, you included. I am so excited to see where we go from here. Well, we're going to talk about that in a little while, but before we dive into the nitty gritty stuff, I always like to warm up with some more fun questions. So are you ready for those? Shoot. All righty. Is there any particular book that you're reading or podcast that you're listening to right now that you're really enjoying? Oh, goodness. My podcast list is a plethora of um, self-defense. Got obviously Born to be a Badass on there. Nice. I love the Tactical Breakdown group and listening to them. I also have my tons of different murder ones like sinisterhood my favorite murder i i could go on and on like different bbc's that they post just news stories like reveal criminal yeah i am those are my go-to background noises i don't read i haven't really read a full book since college And I listen to a lot of audible books. So yeah. uh, listening to books, I do reading books. I fall asleep after the first two pages. So, you know, I've made that same shift. Um, I, I used to love to read. And actually, when I packed up to move, I got rid of more than 5,000 paperbacks that I had in my bedroom. And uh, I just I don't really take too much time to sit down and read anymore. I'm, I'm usually on the go. So audiobooks are a great way to get around that as our podcasts. And it sounds like you, like me, aim for the either the good guy side of the self-defense and self-protection or the flip side of all of the true crime and and murder and mystery type things. Definitely. Sweet. So if you could become a shapeshifter and shift into any animal that you wanted to, what would you pick? 
Oh gosh. Funny you ask. When I was a kid, cheetah was always my go-to animal. If anybody asked favorite animal, who would you be? It was a cheetah. The more and more I grow up, my spirit animal has become the red panda. The red panda is the cutest little thing, but can be ferocious. It doesn't have to jump out of its face. It does not reside in an enclosed space at a zoo because it doesn't jump. And all it does is hang out and chew bamboo all day long and watch people go by and the other animals and nature. And I just think that that would be like the best gig in the world. Everyone thinks you're cute and you get to watch them all just walk around. (laughs) And I love that combination. I've seen those, those little red pandas. They are, they look super cuddly, but I have also seen them when they were not being quite so nice. And I like a little bit of me. Exactly. Exactly. That's really cool. I, I also love that you were initially in touch with the cheetah because my older daughter, Charlotte, who someday you will get to meet, when she was training for first degree black belt at age 10. We had to do posters that you know went up on the wall of the school and, and you had to have some sort of a name or something. And so she was Charlotte the cheetah. And it turned out to be really apt because she loves cats. But it turned out that when she started to run after never having been a runner, she was wicked fast. So, turned out to be her thing. She, I don't think she really refers to herself as Charlotte the Cheetah anymore, but that was her, that was her thing back then. And they're such beautiful, graceful, strong animals. So I see some of that in you still, I got to admit. I think I've just lost a little bit of that speed. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not as fast as I used to be, but I'm still there. Well, and you're you're strong and you're a badass because one thing I do know about you is that you are a CrossFitter and um, I, I love CrossFitters. I was going to say, as are you. <laughs> well, I don't do a lot of CrossFit anymore, but I certainly spent a lot of time in that world and I still love it. Mm-hmm. So what's your favorite self-care practice? Mobility. As we age, and I'm trying to age gracefully, Taking even five to 10 minutes a day and just sitting down and working on some of those sore spots. I walk away just feeling refreshed mentally and physically. And I know that that is going to do wonders to me as I continue trying to, trying to move every day and, and trying to learn new physical skill sets. And I learn more and more about my body every day. Every time I feel something, I'm like, ooh, that loosened up something I didn't expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that opens my mind to the possibilities of Okay, I can age gracefully and continue learning new skills and getting stronger just by moving my body. And that definitely is a self-care practice that I don't regret at all. Oh, that's great. That's something that I used to do a lot of when I was actively crossfitting. And then, you know, in this transition to living up in the hills and not having a box anywhere close and being on my own most of the time, I, I sort of let it go. And what I found was after like a year and a half of not regularly doing what you're talking about, even just little bits of mobility here and there, I got so stiff and immobile. I've tried to add that back in again now, you know, along with more movement, but just trying to get get that back because it's amazing. You don't realize the benefits of it when you're doing it because you feel good. But mm-hmm. if you go for a period of time where you're not doing it, it doesn't take long to notice like, oh, this feels really stuck or this doesn't bend as far as it normally <laughs> used to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's a great practice and you're wise to start it at a younger age. 
because I think I was in my mid-40s when I finally figured it out. And a little bit goes a long way. Yeah. What advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your teens or early 20s? When I think about that question, I I mean, in my early 20s, I was exploring the world in probably the not the safest manner, but still aware of what was going on. And I, I would never want to tell somebody teens to 20s to not go out and explore. To they, they need to take advantage of every opportunity to try new things and being open to different environments and yet learn how to do it in a way that is safe. I also think I would probably want to give and do give women that age group some advice and as much as you think that your your true friends are at that time frame, you really won't find out who your true friends are until you've aged and really found yourself. There are lots of people out there that want to judge you um, and that judgment can leave a lasting effect on you. And um, I wish that more women knew that they don't have to stick with those crabs in the bucket all the time. I always think of that analogy of the crabs in the bucket always bringing each other down. And I found way too many friends that I have now that are stuck with all these crabs that they had when they were teenagers and in their 20s. And they can't get rid of them. And these crabs keep holding them back from dreams that they should be able to pursue. They should be able to experience. And I I really wish that girls in their teens and 20s learn that when it's time for them to get out of the bucket of crabs, that they they need to do so. They need to leave. And that's okay. Even though it's hard to say goodbye to some of those friends that you've known for years and you've, you've gone through a lot, it's okay to say goodbye and move forward. Oh, that's pretty deep. But that's really insightful. And I think sometimes we don't even realize that those friends are the ones that are very subtly kind of pulling us back and causing doubt and anxiety about escaping, you know, and moving on to something new. But it's such a different thing when you have friends who actually lift you up and that you can also give a boost to totally different dynamics. So that's cool. Thanks. Mm -hmm. So where did you grow up and, and what was your, what was your growing up like? So I grew up in a town by Fargo called Moorhead. So FM area, Fargo, Moorhead. The river is literally what separates Fargo, North Dakota from Moorhead, Minnesota. And when I was first born, I was born in Bogota, Colombia. And I had some significant asthma issues as a baby. And my birth mother made the hardest choice that I can assume she could make. And she uh, gave me up for adoption, knowing that she wasn't going to be able to give me or provide for me the medical care I needed. And she made that choice. And I am blessed and honored that she made that choice because I got to come to fun little Iowa, Mount Pleasant, Iowa for a minute until we moved to West Fargo. And my Scottish and Norwegian parents then took us to Moorhead, Minnesota, where I spent the greater part of my Growing up years, experiencing Midwest and all the Norwegian lutefisk I could, <laughs> and Lessa and all that fun stuff. 
that a typical girl from Bogota, Colombia would never have any idea about. Wow, what a what a journey to start life off with. <laughs> yes, it was a blessing. Yeah. Well, so as you were growing up, did you ever have any experiences of feeling unsafe? You know, I grew up in a, so when we moved to Moorhead, our house had an apartment in the basement. Um, and that apartment, my dad just had kind of like whomever reside in that basement. And I would say that it was never really secure. And I do remember um, one night, and it wasn't too late in the evening. It was more around dinner time. It wasn't like it was in the middle of the night or anything. An ambulance and the fire truck and the police department show up at the door. And we soon found out that the girl that had been residing in the basement had tried to commit suicide. And um, it was kind of, I remember that moment just thinking like, wow, that happened like right below my feet. Like right there. It just this all happened. And it wasn't that my dad was rec- reckless. Good-hearted Midwestern people open their doors to lots of people who you just want to give a chance to. And um, I would say that some of the people that wound up in their house maybe weren't the ideal tenants, if you will, but they weren't bad people either. They were just in a sore spot. And I think my parents wanted to provide them an opportunity to better themselves. And she she did live and she was fine and, and she came back and she they continued residing in her family. But that, that was a moment of like vulnerability where I realized like, wow, this stuff can happen, good or bad that can be outside of your control mm-hmm. and you can be the kindest person in the world. And sometimes those things will find you at your doorstep. And um, so I wouldn't say it was, I, I grew up in a very middle class family, very peaceful neighborhood, but it definitely had its little nuances that sometimes we just unfortunately encountered. I wouldn't say that it was unsafe. It was just my my parents are very good people and they open their hearts to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's wonderful that they had that, that spirit to lend a helping hand to people in need. And, uh, you know, it is true that, that you can have that impulse and that generosity. And sometimes the people that you help aren't quite what you think they are. But I don't know, for me, I also like to extend a helping hand to people in need. And uh, it's it's always difficult to have that thought process of, you know, is this person going to be okay? Am I getting a good vibe? You know, so you do make it with informed, I guess it's an informed decision rather than just a, a quickie. Oh, sure. Come on over kind of a thing. Right. But yeah. But I can, I can see how, how old were you when that happened? Gosh, I would say maybe seven or eight. So that's pretty, that's pretty young. I mean, most kids around that age don't really have much exposure to the concept of death or suicide. So that's, that's pretty young to start to contemplate that. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I feel that I was exposed to a lot of things and, and not necessarily like that, but death was kind of commonplace in our household. I have older parents. So therefore my grandmas and grandpas were all much older. And um, I, I watched that process. Each of my grandparents dying. I um, watched my aunt die. I, I mean, I was I was exposed to death quite a lot. Luckily, not violent. 
but still a lot of depth for one little kid to take in. Did you did you just sort of process that all by yourself, or was that something where you know your family helped you deal with those kinds of experiences, or did you get like how did you what did you make of that as you were going through it? So I remember specifically more than anybody like my grandpa. He so my grandpa died in our house while my mom cared for him. It was her dad, and my mom was a hospice nurse, and. She actually wound up supervising some of the hospice stuff in Fargo-Moorhead area. And she um, she knew that world so well and managed that so well that she knew that a kid our age, uh, my age and my brother's age, who was seven years older than me, that we would need help figuring that out. And as much as she would want to help us, she knew that it was best to get us help. So hospice in the Fargo-Moorhead area had grieving programs for kids. And so I definitely remember going to different classes where you have the opportunity to talk to people our age that have gone through something similar where you can talk about the person who died and how that can still hurt and cause pain. And yet it can also be a blessing. And it it doesn't have to be something that holds you back from living your life, but it can be something that you can learn from and move forward from. And so hospice was a huge help Definitely. I think also being a part of the process, my mom never hid anything from us. We always knew what was going on in the room. And I remember being there when she would change on my grandpa's classmate big. So we were always a part of the process. And that that's something that still to this day, I am very blessed that my parents were always honest. And we didn't hold back. And if there was bad news, the band-aid came off right away because honesty and Saying it in the moment is sometimes better than holding back and waiting for the perfect time. Because sometimes there's not a perfect time to tell somebody that so-and-so right. died. Right. Right. So um, being a part of the process and being able to kind of debrief it with people who have a like-minded experience with it is definitely something that has helped me then and continues to help me now in any obstacle I face. So, yeah, I was lucky. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful program, number one, but also just to grow up with, you know, that aspect of life, you know, because death is an aspect of life and not being hidden and just being a, a normal part of the process, I think would actually benefit a lot of us as opposed to being very sheltered and kind of shying away from it and hiding it. Um, I think that that realism allows you to see other things in the world more realistically. It also gives you an opportunity to have some very awkward encounters with future family. A funny story, just to lighten the mood for two seconds, is when my uh, sister-in-law met my mom for the first time. So my brother was bringing my sister-in-law out to dinner with my mom and I. We were sitting at the table and we did the brief introductions. And my mom said, okay, I want to talk to you about like, I don't want to, I, no resuscitation order. I don't want CPR done. Like she just laid it out on the table as the first thing my future sister-in-law heard. And the moment we realized that my future sister-in-law was like, okay, this is cool. We knew she was in. We just like, if you can handle that conversation happening, you right are up front. in the family. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Well, and I love that, you know, transparency, that 
it saves so much pain and conflict and struggle later on if you can be transparent and honest. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into modeling? Oh, goodness. I mean, I, and I yeah. ask because that's an industry that brings together young women who are attractive with men who can be very predatory. So like, how did you get into that? And did you experience any, any creepy or unsafe situations when you were modeling? So because I grew up in a very Scottish Norwegian family, they were all very white. And I am this cute little tan little kid that they carted around all over the place. Everyone noticed me. I was very used to being noticed. And then as I grew up, I'm not going to say I'm the most beautiful girl in the world, but I'm not unfortunate looking. And I loved being in the spotlight. I loved attention. I even took acting classes and things like that. And I was at a one of those fun little conventions. My mom let me go to like this little modeling lookout thing. And there was a modeling company called The Academy in Fargo, North Dakota. And the woman who ran it, her name was Stacy, and she spotted me as an alternative model, like a quote-unquote alternative model, because I wasn't your typical Midwestern, blonde hair, blue-eyed girl. I looked different, and she knew that that would increase my likelihood of her getting business. Now, I can say that now. Mm -hmm. Looking back on it back then, obviously, when I was a kid, I was like, ooh, I got picked to be a model. This is going to be the best thing in the world. I'm going to make millions. I'm going to be a big deal. I'm going to do runway, la, la, la. Runway is out. I'm 5'5". Five, five. That was not going to be an option for me. But she definitely was honest with me in saying what I was possibly going to be able to do with my future in modeling. And so I took a lot of classes. My mom and dad were super good about making sure that I had that opportunity. And I wound up doing some print modeling for Shields, which is like a sporting goods store in the Midwest. A lot of promotional modeling for different makeup companies. I wound up being on a slot machine that I've never seen. <laughs> I traveled out to, I believe I was out in Colorado where they did the photo shoot for that. And my mom came with. Mm -hmm. And then when I was starting to really think, okay, this is this is what I want to do. My mom went out with me to Florida, and we traveled out for a competition in Florida where I was able to compete in a modeling competition. So the modeling competition included runway, print modeling, and then you actually had an opportunity to do acting if you chose to. And I got a cool opportunity to make a little... They're called VHS tapes for those that don't know what they are. They're like big oh my. cassettes. I still have the VHS tape, even though I don't have a VHS player. But I have a little clip of when I tried out to be the yellow Power Ranger. And Power Rangers were coming out. Wow. Um, and it's, it's fun to look back on it now because I remember it. I studied and I studied and I studied. And you only had like overnight to memorize these lines. and. It was very interesting being a part of all that. Now, my mom was with me for most of my modeling stuff because I was still pretty young. But when we were in Florida, we were walking around and I would say there's probably a group of 
four or five girls and my mom and I want to say there was one other adult there and we were at a hotel resort in Florida and we were coming back from dinner and you know in those big resorts they have those long roads and palm trees and it's kind of like lit up with the resort lighting mm-hmm. and I kind of like looked and I, I could tell that somebody was walking behind us and then I was like gosh that guy he's this guy is still following us and I kept walking and he was by himself and he it was just like lurking, you know, when you get that vibe where you're like, you're not there because you're going from point A to point B, you're there for another purpose. And it's nighttime, so you're not a groundskeeper. And I kept just kind of like, hey, mom, like, what's that guy doing? And I mean, she just brushed it off her shoulders and whatever. And I was like, no, there's, there's definitely something going on here. And I kind of reiterated it to my mom. And I can't remember if I called or if she called. But I do remember that I got on the phone with hotel security because they had had some some things being said that had led them to believe that this man was not supposed to be on the ground. And it was at that moment that I was like, wow, I can tell you what he was wearing, what he looked like, how he was walking funny, and the feeling I had about it. And I can only hope, I mean, I have no idea what happened, but I can only hope that whatever was happening, whether he got the help he needed, maybe he was lost and confused, dementia, who knows, or maybe he was there for ill intent or malicious acts. And maybe perhaps because of my awareness and my ability to recall some of the things that I saw, somebody didn't get hurt that night. But there were definitely those moments in modeling where, you know, you're dressed in these weird outfits and you're not always around some of the most gracious people in the world that me being aware and being able to um, listen to my gut, which I did a lot as a kid, Mm -hmm. I think saved me from being a part of some things that maybe weren't going to be the most positive situation. Well, you know, I mean, that's really cool that even at such a young age, you were, you know, you, you recognized that bad feeling and, you know, clearly that was something that you were used to doing was listening to that, you know, the instinct and intuition saying, eh, something's maybe not quite right here. And, um, you know, I think that we actually start like that and just learn to ignore it. You know, we get civilized and, and learn to ignore it, you know, and you just, you kept on, you held on to that, which is really cool. So yeah, that's, that's neat. I'm curious, what prompted you to go to school and study criminal justice and psychology? My mom has no idea. She um, doesn't know how I got there. My my father was a professor of history and wanted to be a milk farmer. And my mom was a professor in nursing gerontology. And so they fully thought I was either going to be a teacher or a nurse. And I think I blew them away when I hit my teenage years and found a overwhelming desire to watch horror movies and murder mysteries (laughs) all day long. I mean, I did watch Matlock with my dad, so we could partially blame him, I suppose. But I was fascinated with why people do what they do and how do they, like, what life do they live? that led them to make the choices that they make. And as in, when I was in college, I did a lot of like philosophy classes and death and dying courses and, you know, deviant thinking classes and even anthropology. 
I just, I wanted to know the backstory of like why we make the choices we make and how do we wind up with these serial killers? And I, I just got engrossed in the mindset. If you ask my husband what he worries about with me, he, he worries about my mind because my brain can go criminal in an instant. And it's because I just, I'm just enthralled with like the, the reason behind why. And the only career I thought, okay, I could be a cop, but I don't necessarily want to arrest the bad guy. I don't, that's, that's not the piece of it that I enjoy. It's not that. It's the, I want to sit down and have a true conversation with the people that make the choices that they do that get them behind bars or in trouble. And when I was going through college and I started taking those classes, I was like, gosh, okay, maybe an agent, maybe forensic psychology. Okay, cool. I'll do that. Oh, wait, I need all this education and I need to become a doctor and I need to read all these books. Nope, because I can't read for long before I fall asleep. So that's not going to work out very well. So I thought I'm going to, I'm going to follow my criminal justice heart, my psychology heart and go down that path. And it led me to case management at the prison as an intern. And I said, this is it. This is the gig. I am surrounded by these people that I want to talk to. I want to know the backstory. I want to know the decisions that they make. And I want to know how can I help them guide them in a direction that maybe they make a different choice next time they're in the community. And that's where like that, that flip of the switch was I'm, I'm selfishly interested and now I selfishly want to save her community. And how can I use all that interest I have, that curiosity and their backstory to maybe guide them in a direction that they could maybe become my neighbors and I wouldn't be fearful of the choices they make. And um, that, that was a big, that was a big experience. It, I mean, it obviously, I still, just given that my, my thesis was sexual murder typologies and I did a, a meta-analysis on it, I'm still intrigued by those things. But I think now my curiosity really is more pushed towards the everyday person who made that one poor choice that led them down a path that they don't know how they get out of. And I would like to say my purpose now, at least at work, is to help guide them in a direction where they, they can see that they can if they choose mm-hmm. to and when they're ready. Well, it's, it's super cool because this fascination with, with the criminal mind, that's something that I have. My my two daughters both have it as well. And uh, and I think what you're talking about, this this overwhelming desire to understand why, like, why do you do what you do? Why did you do what you did? You know, you can go different places with that. And for you to take that into the realm where you're working, where it's like, how can I help you so that you make different choices in the future is is awesome. Like that's one direction you can go with it. And I mean, what you what you didn't talk about, which I also think is really freaking cool, is that now that you are teaching self-defense for women. Like understanding how criminals and predators operate and what motivates them really allows you to to teach women better because the hard thing as a as a decent normal person who doesn't have those 
urges and who doesn't make those kinds of decisions is even just imagining what the threats might be. And so, you know, you've, you've taken a deep dive in a theoretical level into different kinds of, of criminal behavior and, and why, but also, you know, on a day-to-day basis, just interacting with people who, like you said, I mean, they, they may not be the, like the top 3%, you know, serial killers, you know, absolute predators. They might be far less than that, but still you're, you're getting both sides. And I just, I think what a powerful, what a powerful study for you and what makes people tick and, and why, why we could all be the same, right? We could all be good people who don't do bad things to each other, but that's not really, you know, back to talking about your, your childhood and growing up and things being transparent and real, you know, that's not how the real world works. So I think it's so cool that you've got that exposure in so many different directions into that part of the world. And then you can turn around and use it to benefit the people who have made poor choices and you can benefit the people who could be likely victims. I love that you mentioned that. I um, I would say, so I'm not like, it's a blessing that I am not somebody who has ever had to deal with physical violence in the home. I have been fortunate enough that I have not had my relationships escalate to a point where they have become physical. Now I've had some emotionally, emotional stuff that I've dealt with with relationships, but never physical. And I would like to think that because, like you said, my, my brain can kind of push those criminal like mindsets a little, that I am aware of that vulnerability. And when somebody might take advantage of a situation, and I usually am pretty intuitive on knowing when to not be in a certain place, not say a certain thing, and not do a certain thing. Now, that doesn't mean that I am not very capable of being assaulted on the street. It can happen to anyone. I don't care who you are or the training you've had. It can. I have been lucky enough that with my understanding of areas that are not safe, that I am situationally aware enough to look at an area and avoid it. And to the point that, you know, I can walk down a trail with my husband and specifically say to my husband, hey, you see how there's a bike trail there? We're on a walking path and in between is this thick wooded area. That would be the perfect place to take somebody straight off the bike path. And that's where they would get assaulted. And nobody would know the wiser, even though they could be surrounded by people. Mm -hmm. He's like, you're crazy. I'm like, no, I'm just aware of like where that that mindset where they could go with that brain mm-hmm. and the capabilities that they have and how they can other somebody so fast that they become just an object just an object for what they need in that moment and i'm like i'm okay knowing that i know this because i think it keeps me safer and more aware and more diligent and honestly more calm as i'm out in the environment because i'm, I'm my brain's already there my brain's already thought of those things so i'm aware of it so i'm like oh okay when i come around this corner i'm going to be a little bit more diligent of looking around and i'm going to carry on with my day and enjoy the flowers and the sun and the trees that's so cool i'm just i'm sitting here i'm so excited because what you're talking about like those are the things that that we need to teach women is what to look for and and often you know i'll i'll talk with women and say a really good place to start is to think about where you might be vulnerable to being attacked. 
you know, put yourself in the bad guy's mindset and say, if I was going to attack me, how and where would I do it? But it's one thing to say that, but having the imagination and the knowledge to actually be able to identify what you were just talking about, like, hey, you know, in between these two paths, this is a perfect spot. I mean, to me, that's not weird. And this is, I guess, why I really like you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's great and it's useful. It's valuable. And that's what other women need to become aware of, not to be fearful or paranoid, but so they can be prepared. Yes. And I think, so you know, Kelly Sayre. Yes. And she and many more make a game out of situational awareness and threat assessment. And I have been doing that since I was a kid and never knew it. And it was an intuitive thing. I don't, my parents didn't teach it to me, but I just loved observing everything and thinking about the what ifs. And if I didn't have an answer, I asked the why. I always, my mom hated it. Why? But why? But why, mom? Why? Why? <laughs> she hated it. But because I've been doing it since I was a little kid and I never knew it until Kelly's like, it's a game. This is what you do. And I was like, not, but wait, every kid didn't do this because this is all I've done my whole life is observe and think of the what ifs. And if this happened, how would I react? And what would, what would happen if? This person jumped out of that closet. That might have been my older brother that <laughs> think about jumping out of the closet. But it's still, it, it was still so valid and continues to be valid today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's so cool. So I have to ask you, like, you're the only person that I know who was a Miller Lite girl. And like, what what on earth was that like? What did you do? And did you encounter any like, potentially oh, hazardous situations in that role? So because of my promotional modeling, and when I moved to St. Cloud, where I live now, I needed fast money. I needed a job as a college kid. How am I paying the bill? And I know I didn't want to necessarily work in a bar because I did that when I was a kid and that didn't go so great. And I thought, okay, promotional modeling, booze, sure, this will be great. Wound up with a promotional company in St. Cloud and they have a contract with the company who's distributes and promotes Miller Lite. And we were essentially cart around a bunch of computer, like instant t-shirt printing equipment where you would print on t-shirts directly on site. I'd lug around all this stuff. I'd lug around all those freebies, those like frisbees and chip clips and stickers and magnets in high heel boots and denim skirt and a teeny tiny tank top. And I'd lug it around from about 8 till 2 o'clock in the morning, downtown, St. Cloud, or wherever they threw me for the night. I, now that I think back on it, think I'm a complete idiot for doing it. But at 23 bucks an hour, you can't pass that up. And um, there was definitely one night, well, one night with my boss, where he just kept wanting to serve me booze. And I just had to keep saying no. And I left and I actually... Um, I never really worked much after that because I realized the, the boss that I had. But there was another night that I was in the middle of doing Relief for Life at the university for our Criminal Justice Association. So the first part of my day was college. Second part of my day was setting up Relief for Life with Criminal Justice Association and being around a, a lot of strong-headed individuals. And then I left for about four hours in the middle of the night during Relay for Life to go work this part-time Miller Lite gig. And I was at a bar and I had a spot where I was 
kind of tucked away in a hallway that people would come back and forth between two different bars in the bathroom. And some guy smacked me right on the butt. And I turned around and I punched him in the back of the head so hard. <laughs> and he turned and he looked at me and his buddy was like, oh my God, that's not her. And I was like, well, okay, so he thinks I'm somebody else. All right, so now do I apologize? Like, do I say I'm sorry? No. And I just looked at him and was like, I'm not even sorry that you think I am somebody else and that you smacked me under my butt. I said, you should never consider that as an option to say hello to somebody you know, let alone somebody you don't. And I was like, oh, okay, I've been up all day. <laughs> I'm getting. <laughs> but at the same time, I thought I was snarky. I, I walked away thinking, you know what? You did what you did and don't feel bad about it because men have no right whether they know you or not, to smack you on the butt and consider that a fancy hello in my world. Mm-hmm. That's just not that's just not me. And so there was definitely weird opportunities in that gig that I found myself thinking, this isn't the safest and yet I am capable of handling it and figuring it out. And um, yeah, I didn't last very long. Once I started the prison, I was done. <laughs> yeah. Have you been struggling with concerns about your emotional or physical safety? I want to let you know about an exciting new coaching program that can help you get peace of mind and confidence. I've spent more than 20 years learning how to recognize and avoid people and situations that might be dangerous and how to get out of threatening situations if I couldn't avoid them. I would love to put this experience to use, coaching you and designing your own personalized strategy for keeping yourself safe. Now, my normal coaching rate is $500 a month. But I figured out a way to make this as affordable as I possibly can as an exclusive offer for just eight people. This is the Power Up Your Safety Laser Coaching Program. And in this program, I will work with you over short 15-minute calls to tap into your natural abilities so that you don't have to memorize techniques that you might forget in the heat of the moment, to develop strategies, tools, and skills to protect yourself and not rely on someone else like 911 or your significant other to step in and save you. To learn physical self-defense skills based on what everybody can do that work no matter what your age, size, or shape. You also learn how predators, abusers, and criminals operate so that you can recognize warning signs and avoid being in dangerous situations. You'll create mental blueprints for real scenarios that you might face which means that you'll be ready to act, not stuck trying to figure out what to do in the moment. And you'll develop a powerful mindset so that you are motivated to take action and don't feel intimidated or stuck in fear. So for these eight select clients, this program is less than $84 a month for a full year of unlimited 15-minute laser coaching sessions with me. We start with a 30-minute call so that I can learn more about your specific concerns and questions about keeping yourself and your loved ones safe. And then, with each 15-minute call, we will agree on your homework for you to do so that you can take action between calls to move forward. And once you've done your homework, you can schedule your next call. So, for example, you can have your call on a Wednesday, do your homework assignment right after your call, and schedule your next call right away. 
If you recognize that this is the perfect solution to move you from where you are now to where you want to be, just go to my website, CynthiaJolikerRude.com slash laser to find out how you can apply to be one of the select group of personal clients who will get one full year of personal coaching from me for under $84 a month. Now, I just want to let you know that I do guarantee my program and my coaching. So if during our first call, you feel as though this is actually not a program for you, I will promptly return your money in full. So there's no risk at all to you in exploring this option. For those women who don't want to jump into a group program or who don't want to spend large amounts of time improving their personal safety, this is the way to go because we can go at the pace that you want to go spend as much time as you want to spend each week or each month. And what we cover is personalized and customized just for you. I'm so excited to be able to offer this solution for you to help you overcome your concerns about your safety and to finally get you some peace of mind, confidence, and freedom. And I'm thrilled to be able to offer it in a way that suits your schedule and can be customized to meet your specific needs. So if you're interested in becoming one of the select number of clients, go to CynthiaJolikerRude.com slash laser and sign up today. Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting role. It's, it's kind of like being a Hooters girl, you know, right. where, you know, skimpy little outfits, you know, sexy, supposed to be selling something surrounded in, in an environment that is very male dominated and uh, you know, what could possibly go wrong by oh being in that role and, you know, for you to be in that role, but also be as aware as you were and, and are of dynamics and, and also of your own boundaries and willingness to take a stand for yourself. I, I think that's, that's really cool that even at a young age, you had that because I think a lot of young women would be scared to stand up to somebody who encroached like that. Or, you know, it's, it's interesting that your your impulse in that particular situation was like, do I apologize? And I'm sitting here thinking, you know, that asshole should have apologized, uh-huh. not you. <laughs> right. But, you know, what a what a little microcosm, you know, an interesting little world to learn even more about the dynamics and and what a lot of women do have to deal with, even if they're not at work as a Miller Lite girl or a Hooters girl, you know, it's just, it's that, well, you're dressed that way. You're doing this, obviously you're fair game, right? Right. That's what they think. And what, I mean, that was a night that showed me that I can separate a moment like that from the moments of when I returned to the Relay for Life event that was a 24-hour event after punching somebody in the back of the head and telling them what I needed to say, I was emotionally overtaken by the beautiful things that happen at Relay for Life with all of my criminal justice friends. And um, I learned that night that I can I can separate the bad events from the really good events and walk away feeling strong and 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 powerful and excited to see what the next day brings. 
That's cool. That's that's really neat. And I think the more you, the more time you spend in the dark side, the more important it is to spend on the light side. You know, and the same amount of time, if not more. And um, it can be hard. You know, I know often when I work with women in domestic violence situations, it's hard to to let go and not have that bleed over into the other parts of life that aren't that dark. Yeah. And that's that's a cool observation. So, can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to work in corrections and and the kinds of situations that you deal with? Every day is a new day. Boring is good. And when you you know that you made somebody cry in your office in the first five minutes, you had a successful moment. I, so? I so as a corrections officer when I was doing that for seven years, you know, you have these like brief moment interactions with a bunch of different guys. We hold about a thousand guys in our prison and they come and go pretty fast and you know, you have really good momentary interactions, for instance, a guy that I knew in the sense that I had seen him multiple times in a few shifts. I kind of knew his personality and he was usually pretty nice, cordial, respectful dude. And one time I walked past his cell and he was very somber and very quiet and not really making eye contact, which just wasn't him. And I stopped and I said, are you okay? And he said, I'm fine. Thanks. And I was like, well, let me know if anything changes. You know, you're not going to pry too much. And later when I walked by again, he stopped me and he said, you know what? Thank you for asking because most people don't care. And because you stopped and you gave me that moment, that made me feel better. And those are the brief moments you get with guys where you realize that humanity needs to be present in prisons because without it, you don't actually help model the behavior you want them to model and do in the community. And I had a lot of brief moments like that as a corrections officer. But then in my case management gig, you you get these files, these paper files, or you're reading on computer about what they did and their history and where they came from according to old documents that the agents maybe like asked a question and they told them their life history. And you read all this stuff. And something that I have taken to heart is that I don't judge them. That happened in court. I don't punish them. Being in prison and away from their family and the community is punishment. And so I read the file and I do what I need to do so that I'm doing my job. But I allow them to introduce themselves in the way that they want to present in front of me. It benefits me to do that because not only do I feel like I get more of a genuine response from the guys on my caseload, but I can quickly tell if they are maybe that 3% that they are there to try to manipulate more than they are to better themselves. And if I can have a guy talking about the things that are most important to him and he starts to cheer up in my office in five minutes, I know I have a guy in front of me that wants to do better or wants to be more than he is. And maybe he's scared. Maybe he's never been told that he can. And maybe he just doesn't have the tools or the resources yet. And that's when I know I have them in the sense that I have the opportunity to guide them in that direction. I can provide them the tools. The only pitfall is I can give them all of these things, but the ultimate choice is up to them. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of talks about 
you only can choose to impact and make decisions for yourself that are going to be long lasting. You can't control other people. And that is something that some guys struggle with. I had a conversation with a guy today about that who's been to prison multiple times. And he's back because he couldn't find a place to stay in the community that the agent approved. And he can't be homeless on the supervision he's on. And so they told him, go back to prison for 90 days and find a residence. Well, he unfortunately has made choices in his past that have burned a lot of bridges with family and friends. And treatment facilities will no longer take him. He does have a job, which is awesome. But this job is in South Dakota, which is out of state. And he is very angry. He is angry at the system. He's angry at his family for what he says is they're abandoning him. And I, um, I just ask simple questions like, why do you feel that they would not want you in their home? And they talk about some of those reasons why potentially family and friends don't want you in the home and how they have to build those bridges back up. So we have a discussion about that. And then we have a discussion about how it is amazing that he has a job, because some people can say that that's not what they have. And how can you make that job still happen, but follow all the conditions of your release, like finding a residence, getting into treatment. And by the end of our talk, he was very gracious, and he understood what he needed to do, not because I told him he needed to do it, but because he said the words himself. And when they take ownership and when they make the decisions and the choices themselves on their own accord, typically they do better and they're more successful. Mm-hmm. He also ended that conversation knowing that he can control one thing. And I said, what is it that you can control? And he said, I can control not being around people who put me in situations that I make bad choices. I said, you can. Wow. And it could be lonely. It could be lonely for a while. I will never lie to my guys. I will never sugarcoat how hard it is to be successful in the community with all this stuff going on. But they need to know that they can. And if they're strong enough and they want to, they will. It will not be easy, but they can. And so that is a pretty regular conversation I have with a lot of guys. But, man, for them to just have truthful honesty and somebody who is willing to not judge them by all of the stuff we read, but judge them for, like, the moment that we're having. I'm not going to say it is 100% successful, right? Like, I don't know. But I, I hope that that plant the seed that people will provide humanity and compassion and empathy to somebody in their situation. Wow, what an amazing, I mean, it's, it's more than a job, I can tell, you know, that it, and what a perfect match your, your background and your mindset and your curiosity is for that kind of a role of being a catalyst for transformation for people that many of us would just say didn't deserve support, didn't deserve help, you know, like they, they made their choices, they just got to live with the consequences and that's kind of it, you know, I, I, and the kinds of people you're talking about don't sound like the ones who are in jail for life, you know, they're mm-hmm. there for a period of time and, and they're supposed to be rehabilitated and given tools to be able to reenter society. So to have somebody like you working with them and helping them in this process of self-discovery really 
probably things they've never been exposed to before in their lives. That's mm-hmm. just just fascinating to hear about and like so cool. Like I didn't I didn't really know that people did this kind of work. I had no idea. It's humanity, right? Like who do you who do you want to live next door to? Who do you want to encounter in the alley? Do you want to leave a lasting impression impression that they are the scum of the earth and then you see them out in the alley and they look at you and think, oh, you're that person that thought I was the scum of the earth. Let me prove to you how I'm so much stronger than you by beating you up and taking your money. When I want them to see humans that they encounter on the street as possibly that human that sees them for more than what they are. Yeah. And that, I mean, that carries through for even my lifers, my guys that I know are never getting out. I don't treat them any different. They are going to be surrounded by human beings the rest of their lives. And if that moment of humanity helps them from assaulting a staff member, then that is just as beneficial. Mm -hmm. So you do have people that are in there for life. Oh, gosh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we're intake. So we get um, anybody committed to the Commissioner of Corrections comes through our facility. Wow. We get it all. Well, so talk to me a little bit about crisis intervention and negotiations, because I, I know that you you do that and and teach that too. So I, that's so they are two separate yeah. worlds. They're two separate worlds. Both are a ton of active listening and empathy and compassion and humanity for sure. But one kind of has that like long end goal in sight. So. Negotiations, crisis negotiations team, which I'm a co-commander for the department for. We go in when there's those big, you hope you train for situations that you never want to happen. So a hostage takeover, you know, 10 guys decide to take over the dining room and hold two of the cooks and an officer staff hostage. So you got 10 bad guys, 10 hostage takers. Well, let's just say hostage takers. And then you've got Three staff, we are there to figure out, are all these 10 guys really the bad guys? Or are there some people that maybe just got in the melee and they just happen to be there? Or they're threatened to be there? Are these staff necessarily all victims? Or maybe one of them is in cahoots with some of the offenders that took them hostage? What can we do to preserve life on all sides? What can we do to figure out how a normal day can turn into such a hectic, chaotic day? And how can we work together in alliance with the hostage takers to help them save face and keep their respect while also safely providing an opportunity for them to make the choices they need to make to release the hostages and potentially lessen the type of discipline that they're going to get once it finishes. Because reality is, if you take somebody hostage, you're in trouble. And we don't downplay that. Now, you obviously will get your, you know, we we practice the scenarios of like, I want a helicopter and a pizza, and then I'll give you a hostage. We practice those scenarios because they're just fun to talk to. But it all goes back to having that long, drawn-out conversation. It takes time. You have to build a ton of rapport while talking to a hostage taker 
and having those those questions that non-judgmental again those non-judgmental conversations about how did we get here today what is so different about today than yesterday that this is happening and it's a more drawn out conversation and it's it includes your tactical teams and how do we work together with the tactical team so that they just don't bombard in because history and science has shown that if we just let tactical go in guns a blazing, people are going to get hurt. A lot of people are going to get hurt. So negotiations is there to kind of be the calm in the storm so that we can talk about things first and potentially resolve something like that without people getting hurt. Now, tactical is always there when there are no other options. They are always there to break down the door when they need to. But we work together in negotiations and tactical and our emergency response team to try to find the best solution that we can safely get everyone out. Worst case scenario, they go in. But as a team together, we try to find that balance. Where, where can we go? And how can we talk? And what can what information can I provide you? Or what information can you provide me that we can work together so that we can work with the hostage takers to navigate this chaotic situation and in the end, get people out safely. Mm-hmm. So negotiations is one ballpark. Crisis intervention team is a whole nother ballpark. And that one's used every day in corrections. Every day, crisis intervention team members are called out to deal with anything from schizophrenia to just an anxiety panic attack to suicidal individuals to people who are just having that real crappy day to PTSD uh, to people having flashbacks, people just hearing voices and their delusions, people in drug-induced psychosis because maybe they're weaning off from drugs that they've uh, unfortunately had out in the streets when they come to us. And that is there for same concepts in the sense that you're treating them with humanity and compassion and you're non-judgmental and you're empathetic and you are building rapport, but it's in a very short duration. CIT, crisis intervention team, is designed to be there for the individual in the moment, knowing that in 10 minutes, you have a switch out and 200 guys are switching out. So how do you deal with this crisis and still stay on that timeline so that the rest of the institution can continue on with the day? And you're, you're still taking into account how do you use your active listening skills and show all those things you need to show for humanity's sake and yet get this person settled and the tools they need and the resources in the moment so you can move on with the rest of the stuff in the day. And then somebody can come back and touch base with that gentleman or that person in crisis. So two very different ball games with a lot of the same similar skill sets needed. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just just listening to you describe that. Just thinking, you know, those are both sort of extreme situations that are emotionally charged. Where I don't know if life hangs in the balance is the right term, but I mean, sometimes that could actually be the case. And you're using these tools of building rapport and active listening and not othering the people that you're dealing with to kind of come to a peaceful resolution. And to me, that's kind of the, the extreme version of what we all 
may have to deal with just in our daily lives, just not to that degree. So same tools would apply, I would imagine. I mean, do you find that these (laughs) strategies are things that could actually just be applied to ordinary life? Oh my gosh. There was a point where I was creating motivational interviewing so much that my husband would be like, can you just stop MIing me? Because motivational interviewing is called MI for short. And he's like, just stop MIing me. What is reality? Motivational interviewing is a set of active listening tools with a target behavior in mind, meaning like, so you struggle with drug use. Let's talk about drug use and really getting the background story behind their intrinsic motivation for why they use and how can it look when you don't use and what do those moments look like and really just diving deep into this one target behavior so that they can find that it's actually more beneficial for them to not use and guiding them down that path and that how it looks when they're sober and what they had and and loved when they were sober. And so motivational interviewing would sound like a lot of reflecting, right? And a lot of affirmations. And it's very, so empathetic. Everything is very empathetic. A lot of compassion, a lot of emotional labeling. And when you first get trained in motivational interviewing, you are kind of like given these key, like fun terms. Like it sounds like to me that you don't have very much fun when you're you're with those friends that use all the time. Tell me more about that. And that can get to be very like for me personally, it sounds kind of fake. And so that's how I sounded to my husband. And so he instantly knew, like, stop MIing me. You sound like a doctor. It's so dumb. And now it's more of a, a conversation piece where I'm just like, huh, that's interesting. What do you mean? And instead of tell me more, it's just more of a conversation. Uh-huh. Instead of saying it sounds like, it's just, wow, that, that's crazy. It is very similar to what you do to draw out a podcast. And a conversation <laughs> you have with somebody that, like, you know, tidbits, but you're trying to draw more out of them. Mm-hmm. And I've actually learned a lot of key ways to do that from listening to podcasts and how people interview. It's, it's the same concept, but motivational interviewing has a target behavior. Right. That's one thing that we're talking about. Well, that's a really interesting insight, too. And that, I mean, often when we learn a new tool like that, it, it does come across as being very scripted because it is when you're learning. But as with all of these tools and strategies, like the very best thing you can do is to work with them enough that, that they become your own and they become natural to use. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. That's what all of the things I do. I mean, I don't know how many times you've heard me. You could probably take a shot for how many times you've heard me talk about empathy and compassion and humanity and respect and, that's that's what all they are. That they're all, they are all that within different time frames and with different final goal. Mm-hmm. Everything I enjoy is communication and learning more with just different time frames and different end goals. Well, and I also think that what what you're talking about is, I mean, a different person could take these exact same tools and strategies that you're talking about using and use them in a very different way that feels to the person on the other side as being manipulative. 100%. So having the respect and 
being curious, like genuinely curious and wanting to know and understand, I think makes all the difference. And um, and that's where having the empathy and being a good listener and asking open-ended questions because you genuinely want to learn and know and understand so that you can help them must make all the difference. Yeah. My intent is not malicious ever. Yeah. 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 Well, don't ever go onto the dark side because you'd be a dangerous woman if you did. <laughs> I, I think yeah, I, I think that's why some people think I'm a little kazoo. Because they know, like my mom always said, you were one step, one step to the other side. But I never went there. Mm-hmm. No, no. And I mean, it sounds like you're in exactly the right place. So this is this is just fascinating. There's one other thing that I have on my list of questions that, that we haven't covered yet. And that's just that you have traveled quite a bit. And I'm really curious because I, I also traveled a lot when I was younger. I lived in England. I lived in France, lived in India, you know, traveled various other places. Like, what did you learn about yourself and about that delicate dance between going out into a completely new environment, a new culture where you don't know the rules? Maybe you don't even speak the language. You're not familiar with the geography and the good places and the not so safe places. And, and, but you also have this desire to really explore and learn and experience the culture. So what did you learn about how to be safe and, and yet still how, how to actually experience being in a new place and and make the most of it? So I do enjoy doing a lot of research before I go someplace and just knowing some of the ins and outs. And then once I'm there, Having that, like the moment that you that you land in a new airport, and just like taking five minutes to settle in and look around and get the vibe, and then I really enjoy playing dumb. So, for instance, Mexico City. I got I landed in Mexico City, and I knew my friend who was studying abroad. She had already been there for a month or so. Had sent for a car to pick me up, so I knew I had safe travel from the airport to where she was staying with her host family. But I kind of just stood there and I I saw my sign. I knew who my driver was, but I, I watched and I didn't go to my driver right away. And I just watched all the taxis and I watched all the drivers just show up. And I remember thinking like, thank God I have this safe driver because I can't imagine showing up in Mexico City when I look like I speak Spanish and I don't. Mm-hmm. And thinking like how quickly they could take advantage of somebody. And playing dumb and having people come up to me and I could just kind of look at them and be like, no, no. And still knowing that I safely knew like, where do I need to go? I need to go to this driver or security is to my left. Like I have, I have a safe out. But what would happen if I kind of like touched on that line a little bit just to see what would happen? And so, you know, getting in that car and then knowing that I was petrified, by the way, I don't know if you've ever been to Mexico City, but those drivers are scary. Just close your eyes and hang on tight. (laughs) And so I get to my friend's host house and I instantly realize like how secure this house is. I mean, security gates upon security gates. And yet you look down the road and you realize like there's Mexico military standing there with AK-47 hanging out with their rifles protecting a street corner and like having that understanding that yes, this house in front of you seems very secure and it's a beautiful home and it's 
the people were gracious and they were amazing, but not everybody is afforded that opportunity. And taking that pause to think that you could actually be going to that hotel where those armed guards are actually standing and being aware of, even though this house is great and these people are good humans, there is potential. And so tread lightly and with caution. But you did your research. You know your good places to go. You know your key terms you need to know. And you you have support here at the house. So I like to test the line a little bit and play dumb to kind of and safely play dumb so that I um, can see how far will people push. So then I kind of know how far I can push. So I do a lot of that. I also am just like really aware of like who am I around and where is my out. I am always aware of my out. Where, do, where is my egress? If, and again, that playing that game of like, what if this happens in this restaurant? Where am I going to go? Where are my weapons of opportunity? What can I use on me that I have that will benefit me? Or how can I communicate when I don't know the language? What, what pictures can I draw? What, what things can I point at? You know, and just all the what ifs when you're traveling, but still, you know, the education piece, I think is by far the biggest thing that I've learned is know where you're traveling, know your surroundings, know your go-to places, um, and always make sure that the people who are not traveling with you that you you trust know where you're going, know who you're staying with, have your contact information, plan times where you're actually going to contact them so that if you miss that call, they know, okay, maybe I need to reach out. Maybe I need to make sure everything's okay. because. In that moment that you haven't contacted them in two days, you don't want them to assume that you're just having a good time. Maybe they need your help. So set those time frames and those parameters with the loved ones that you aren't with on your travels to say, you know, if I don't call you tomorrow at noon, just give me a call. Text me. I could be having fun, but that's a good reminder that you and I need to stay in touch and that we're okay. Oh, yeah. Really good tips there. That's that's great. I, I really did want to ask you. Uh, about traveling because can you just kind of reel off all the different places you've been <laughs> um mexico city was a huge experience i was in warsaw for a minute Dubrovnik. i will go back to croatia in a heartbeat if you give me the money and the vacation time i would spend a, a year in croatia if i could um i'm trying to think of where else i've done a lot of traveling in alaska and darn long road trips you take with your family through all of the states, you know, all the national parks and I've been to New York City and I've gone to Chicago and we've done we've done the Florida trips and we've done, you know, the trips out to California and San Diego and Sacramento. I still have a lot of places to go though, Cynthia. I have so mm-hmm. many places I want to go and things I want to see and I will. It'll happen. Yeah. Awesome. Well the last thing that I would like to hear about is what drew you to the 500 Rising training and um, what you plan to do with that? In the last two years, three years, I kind of got to that point when I hit 35 where I just don't care anymore what people think of me. And I just want other women to feel how empowering it is to just be you and not care what other people think because you, again, can't control what other people think of you. So be genuine to yourself. And if you're going about your day in a non-malicious way, they either love you or you don't, but you don't get to control it. And that brought me to like, I just want to, I'm not, I am, I grew up a tomboy. I still to this day don't enjoy a huge amount of women in my life. 
but I do love women who want to grow, who want to learn, who want to empower, who are there to support one another, who relish in seeing other leaders come up from the, the group you're with. Watching people blossom is huge to me. And, and surrounding myself with women who are like-minded has brought me to a, like a place of peace and calmness. Like I have this new tribe that I can go to. And that's, I mean, I always knew Kelly Sayre was one of those people. Like I always knew I looked up to her. She is incredible in so many ways. And she said, you know what? I went to this, this violence dynamics class. You would love it. And I was like, well, let me know. And then she said, oh, Tammy, she's a part of this group. She's got this 500 rising train the trainer class. You would, you would be perfect. You have self-defense in your background and control tactics. You'd be awesome. And I was like, cool. Let me know. I was in that group. Like, I'm not kidding you. Like Tammy on paper terrified the crap out of me. And I was like, oh my God, this woman, she could break me with her pinky. And that's not even what she could mentally do to me. Like, how am I going to do it? And I walked in the room and I think I was the first or second person in the room and Tammy was organizing tables and I walked into 500 Riser train the training group and she smiled and she stuck out her hand and I shook her hand and I was like, are we good? This is goodbye. And then other women came in and then Casey, token, token male came in and I have never been surrounded with such motivational inspirational, strong human beings that only wanted to see each other succeed and grow. And even if they failed, you applauded it. It was a good thing to fail because that meant you were learning. And that was okay. And it was okay to speak honestly. And it was okay to talk about your emotions. And it was okay to really dig deep. And I knew this is this is my new tribe. Like these are my people. This is what I want to see more of. And I need to be a part of this community because the women out there, I am sorry, but I just wish I could dig them out of some of the holes that they have found themselves in for whatever reason and help lift them up. Because if I could carry each and every one of them out of those holes, I would. And this is as close as I can get. This is as close as I can get to give them the opportunity to find their way. And I can't, I cannot wait. I have a bet with Tammy. But if she can get 500 trainers, I will get a tattoo for 500 Rising. (laughs) So she's got a ways to go. But you know what? I will help her in that. I will assist because that is what we do. We lift each other up. And even if that means that I get the 500th person in in training and that means I get my tattoo, then so so be it. But I I can't see my place anywhere else right now. 500 Rising is I want it to take up more space in this world. Just like each and every woman should take up more space. And I want it to create strength and momentum. And I want to see it in every country and I want to see it in every state. And I, I just, I wish that I could train it all day and do my full time job. But currently that is not an option. Wow. Well, I, I love it. I'm so glad that you, you came into the 500 rising community and you have so much to offer. You know, I think sometimes when we join a group like this and do a training like this, you know, we're thinking more about what we can learn and, and what we can get out of it. But I also think every, every woman or man, because there's some guys who've uh-huh. come to this now, you know, everybody brings something 
unique and and cool to offer to the group. And I mean, I think in this whole conversation, it's become even clearer how many different things that you have to offer as more women do join the 500 Rising movement and start to train more women and, and help to change the balance of power. So I love it. And I tell you what, if you're going to go get a tattoo, let me know because I love <laughs> ink and I love to go with friends to get ink. And would that be your first one? Oh gosh, no, I'm on. I just actually had one of my old ones redone by an apprentice at a local tattoo shop. And he made that what once was a timid angel standing for independence way back when into a beautiful woman who knows exactly where she wants to be. That's awesome. (laughs) That's great. Well, I have one more question for you before we wrap it up. So how do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Let go of what other people think of you and stay true to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Forgive yourself. And deal with the crap that you've never dealt with. Well, boom. Yeah. In the short, sweet, to the point, and super powerful. And you, you have a way with words. You're very pithy. <laughs> well, I know that there are going to be people that want to reach out to you. So what's the best way for them to get in touch? So 500 Rising will have their uh, website up and running. So 500 Rising would be the search for that for right now. I don't have like a magical professional Instagram page or anything like that. But if you want to try to find me on Instagram, it's mhealed10, which is the letter M H E A L D one zero. I am, I am your average Joe girl. I just uh, really have a curiosity for human beings. So I don't live a luxurious life. I work out. I play with my dog and I drink beer. It's pretty boring actually. But if you uh, feel like you've been entertained by something like that, I guess you can try. <laughs> well, I I think that people are going to be very fascinated by all of the conversation that we've had today. And they're going to want to stay up to date on, on new things going on in your life, especially as you do start to do more with 500 Rising and, and teaching. So it was awesome. Thank you so much. It's been just great, Emmy, to have you on the show. I am so glad that, that you came on. Thank you. It was super fun. Thank you for having me. This is the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma, and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.